I am uncertain of Jonah's points and tallies for the year, but I do know that he lit 16 things on fire. No sugarcoating the truth this week on Selected Shorts. I'm Baron Vaughn, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. So, who am I? What am I? Why am I here? Well, I'm a comic actor, bon vivant, who has read for Selected Shorts at the Getty Center in L.A. and for its 2020 virtual Selected Shorts series. I've been featured on shows including Those Who Can't, Superstore, and Corporate, which take place behind the scenes at a school, a big box store, and an office, respectively. I'm just saying that in work and in life, I'm always navigating the overlap between the personal and the political. I think we all are to some extent. And it's useful here because our stories all deal with this in some way. Today's tales are about a zealous teacher, a cloistered kingdom, and an all-consuming marriage between a mayor and his campaign manager. Each of the insular little worlds deals closely with the division between the personal and political, or perhaps the absence of that division. Our first story comes from the writer Kylie Reed. Her novel about race, class, and babysitting, Such a Fun Age, was one of the biggest debuts of 2020. This story, Parent Night at Confidence Academy, is told in the form of student evaluations sent by an unusual teacher. Maybe the unnamed educator is fed up with her private school's weird regulations, or it's her non-traditional upbringing. But whatever the reason, the teacher gets brutally honest, and as we laugh, we're left to imagine the fallout. Reading the story is an actor who appears in the HBO series Succession and co-stars in the screen adaptation of the much-loved graphic novel Why the Last Man. This is Juliana Canfield performing Kylie Reed's Parent Night at Confidence Academy. To whom it may concern in Alistair's family. We mean to inform you of your son's progress at Confidence Academy. He has failed to the point of no fixing. In our star system, he earned no stars. In the tally board, we created negative tallies. We created these negative tallies for him. Do not feel poorly. Boys are able to do this in some years. It hurts us too a little. You must remember something for his life and yours. Sometimes you aren't good enough, and that is an all right thing because you get to try again, unless it's your second try. See section 43.2, Confidence Academy won't support failures after year two due to funding. I've always liked your son. He is someone other children enjoy sitting by and swinging with, and this is a talent. There are other letters I must write today about smart children who no one likes, and those are much more difficult. I hope you take heart in that knowledge. If we were in my hometown in Germany, my mother would say that life is no pony farm, and she would say this in German. Best teacher. To whom it may concern in Sabrina's family. Sabrina will attend a college that people will know of when they hear its name. She has earned 53 stars, and she tallied 143 points. She says please and thank you in a way that you can tell is natural. While I'm happy to continue having Sabrina as the fire drill master, the nature of her diligence has caused me some anxiety. 
She keeps the attendance sheet crisp, and she breathes as instructed as she counts the children. See section 2.3, pupils breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth. But Sabrina's discipline has an intensity that I can see manifesting in places that I wouldn't deem appropriate. She's the kind of person who will later ask a boyfriend to be a little bit rough, but then she'll cry afterwards and keep saying that she's fine. She'll sit in her apartment and not realize that she has been picking at the blackhead behind her knee for over an hour. She'll look up and wonder when the sun went down. None of these qualities will keep her from doing all of the things that people do, but if you would like me to appoint another fire drill master, please signal me privately in the pickup line. I can also see Sabrina becoming so angry that this task was taken away from her that she would start to pluck at the hairs near the back of her scalp. Again, this wouldn't make her unsuccessful, but we can make the transition a tender one. Best teacher. To whom it may concern in Alabama's family. Alabama has succeeded to the point of leveling upward. She has earned seven stars and tallied the same number of points, plus six. This is not a large amount, but I feel that in terms of her life, points will not be regarded as chiefly for your child. Alabama asks questions that turn the recipient deep inside themselves. She will put her face close to yours and say, why did your mommy give you that name? She'll hug your side and ask, but who puts you to bed at night? She's the type of person who will later open a window when her sister has died so her sister's soul can float into the night and away from all her fears. She's good at spelling words that contain silent letters, and she reads all the directions before she begins. Alabama never cries, and she finds Jonah's threats silly. I want to do this also. Best teacher. To whom it may concern in Sasha's family. Sasha has outdone all the other students. He earned 156 stars and tallied so many points that they didn't fit on the chart anymore. I had to go down the sides and into the margins to draw his tallies. They started to look more like hyphens. And we all together learned that sometimes doing better than everyone else doesn't look the way you thought it would. I think it's important that you know Sasha's reaction to earning tally number 87. Jonah got a little mean and said, That's big points, Sasha. Wow-wee! Sasha said nothing, but Jonah continued to sing Lama Lama Ding Dong and Ah Suki Suki Now in Sasha's general direction. As the firemen removed Jonah from class, I heard Sasha say, tallies can't be big because they aren't even here. He earned zero points for eye contact that period. I want to say all these things like, we're doing the best that we can, and this isn't easy for everyone, but you know this more than I do because you managed to have a child, despite the amounts of normal person sadness, and so I won't say anything. Best teacher. To whom it may concern in Caleb's family. Caleb is fine now. It's something like, um, 
46 stars and a bigger amount of tallies. I still feel badly about Caleb's fight with Raymond earlier this year. They both cried, and that was not a fun thing. We, myself and two other teachers, collectively talked about it for too long after it happened, which made it all stupidly worse. When I was little, my oldest brother fell and hit his mouth on the side of our bunk bed. His front tooth became stuck in the wood. See YouTube video, Boy's Front Tooth Becomes Stuck in Wood. He panicked and I laughed a little. He ripped himself free and landed on his feet, but the tooth stayed put in the side of our bed. It was six months before it began to rot and my mother asked a neighbor to pull it out with pliers. This gives me the same feelings as the aftermath of your son's fight. I've never done serious neatly and it never crossed my unserious mind that Raymond would use a stapler for anything other than book reports. I do think Caleb is fine now. As they say in my country, everything has an end, but the sausage, it has two. Best teacher. To whom it may concern in Becca's family. Becca is a nice person to sit in the front row. She has earned 43.5 stars and tallied 105.5 points. Becca receives many half points that I tell myself will even out. It's because her face makes me guilty when she cries and I have eight other pupils to give confidence to. She's the only one in the class to receive point fives, which does make her a little special. If Jonah's parents ask about point fives, please tell them that they do not happen or exist. This year, at Carnival Day, I stopped worrying about Becca in a very good way. She skipped and sang with the other children. She was the dirtiest one by 1,000% as the annual cakewalk commenced. You know this because you have to, but Becca won two cakes that day. I have not seen this happen ever. The way her smile was shaped on that second cake win stays with me even now. All the pieces of her very complete human self revealed themselves as she jumped inside the light. Becca is filthy, but she shows all the signs of knowing who she is. See, how to come back to yourself as a young thing, chapter four. I think it's okay if you stop worrying about her too. I also support her decision to move from two C's to two K's, and I encourage her classmates to support her as well. Best teacher. To whom it may concern in Raymond's family. Hello, Susan. Please don't tell the other parents that I miss Raymond because that could very well be the end. I hope he is as great as is allowed at those types of places and that he received the sweatbands I sent. It was nothing, so don't think of making a thank you card or any type of customary gesture that a parental figure in your life once said that you should make. There's a movie called The Christmas Story where a bully mistreats a little boy every day. The little boy finally has enough of it and beats this mean kid up. His mom runs over and pulls him off. I asked my mother what she would do if she saw me beating up a mean person, someone who had made my life and preferences difficult to find. She said, I'd walk over and I'd make you stop. 
but I'd walk over very slowly. I'm not saying that you walked over slowly. I remember you at the very least trotting, but if you were in fact a good runner who chose not to run, I'd understand. While Raymond and Caleb bled and cried, Jonah giggled into his hands. I feel he's the real enemy here. Also, 10 stars and 16 tallies, if that is important for you to know. Best teacher. To whom it may concern in Genevieve's family. Genevieve should be given the thing she wants, mostly. 50 combined stars and tallies is actually very good for someone with her nervous hands. I'm sure you've heard this before, but Genevieve is, in fact, the only student in our class without a middle name. It sets her apart when we practice meeting others. See, when you're over the bar scene, chapters 5 and 6. And it makes her alone when we study monograms slash italics slash history of the South. If you are worried that all the good ones have been taken, you are mistaken in a great way. You can still find unique names that may not be attractive to look at, but will add to her character and her list of interesting things. She'll tell a lover that she didn't have a middle name till she was this age. They'll touch her face and say, Really? And pretend that her hair was about to fall into her eye. It was not. And it never is. If you're nervous about this transition, contact Becca's family for support. Becca's mother is the type of person who likes it when people stop by. Best teacher. To whom it may concern in Jonah's family. And here we are at the end of the school year. Sometimes when I think of this, I do a little disco with the top of my thighs and I whisper sing in a sweet falsetto, no my Jonah. I am uncertain of Jonah's points and tallies for the year, but I do know that he lit 16 things on fire. Your son will be promoted to the next class cheers for all, and I'd like to inform you of what this means for my life. Jonah's decision to stand outside my classroom window and watch me eat lunch every day was a very special thing for him to do. If you were a woman of 38, wouldn't you love a little boy with a dead front tooth to stare at you while you eat your lean cuisine? What uber fun for all. Sometimes he would strike a match. We've never known how or where he got them, and let it burn down to the tips of his fingers. The only nice thing your son brought to Confidence Academy was the necessary presence of firemen. I am courting one, and I feel that we are starting to do that thing where we both feel that it's strange if we don't talk every day. I'm looking forward to standing in the shower, sometimes with this aforementioned fireman, and not crying as if I were in a video of music. As they say in this country, they all lived happily ever after, or as they say in mine, and if they are not dead, they are still alive. Bye forever, teacher.
That was Juliana Canfield reading Kylie Reed's satirical story, Parent Night at Confidence Academy. I'm Baron Vaughn. Oh, the honesty. I think we've all wanted to be honest in a place where we could not. Mainly a job. I did that once, and I'll never do it again. Our next story, A Little Fable, is by 20th century German-Jewish author Alfred Dublin. He is best known for his expressionistic novel Berlin Alexanderplatz, which has been adapted for film three times. Dublin was exiled from his home during the rise of Nazism, so he was understandably drawn to the rules that govern societies and the ways in which people follow or rebel against those rules. In this modern fable, Dublin introduces us to two happy kingdoms, each oblivious to a keen irony that governs that happiness. It's a warning about what happens when the political eclipses the personal. Reading the story is an Emmy and Tony Award-nominated actor whose credits include the TV series Grey's Anatomy and Scandal and the film adaptation of Where'd You Go, Bernadette? All this, and she's also a regular contributor to selected shorts. Here's Kate Burton performing A Little Fable by Alfred Dublin. Once upon a time, there was a continent called All Bark and No Bite, and in it a country called the Kingdom of Tongue Tied. The sun and the moon shone their light upon it in their customary alternating fashion, but mighty rivers flowed through and rugged mountains towered above it, giving rise to a sense of the exceptional and heroic. The kingdom was named tongue-tied following the wishes of its own people, since there was nothing they respected as much as language. Because of their idolatrous worship of language, they used it as little as possible. Education was therefore directed primarily toward vigorous exercise, business and sports, and also music and noise, but with no words or meaning. Language, they taught, was not worthy of a true tongue-tidian. Precise thinking was likewise not held in very high esteem. People made themselves understood with looks, short nods, or hand gestures, and deaf-mutes enjoyed great honor throughout the land. Every city in the kingdom had at least one newspaper, consisting of 16 white pages and a similarly expressive advertising supplement. The editors were carefully screened, but there was hardly a flood of applicants for the jobs, since it was a difficult, arduous task to present the text and advertising in new and interesting ways and keep everybody happy. The familiar ABC letters of the alphabet, as well as the type in the typesetter's cabinets and printing presses, had had to be replaced by the corresponding mute script, or white letters. The white color had had to be delicately modulated. Snow white, lamb white, egg white, and so on. With whole generations of typesetters devoting their lives to the task, while the sharply edged black letters of an earlier era were taken out of circulation. These newspapers were read with different colored eyeglasses. That was all the variety people got. There were mute phones in the editorial offices. When a call came in, a black light on the device blinked against a black background. Trained telephone operators, almost exclusively men, 
Under the new conditions, women were no longer suited to this old occupation of theirs. Took down the news, which was at once set in white print and disseminated throughout the country on posters and placards. Crowds of people stood in front of the sturdy placard pillars or lines of light running around the buildings. Bill posters tore down old news sheets and pasted up new ones under police protection. Excitement filled the air, though everyone kept their self-control. The candor of the historian obliges me to report that this great tradition in the kingdom was eventually carried on almost exclusively by official bodies. The general population gradually fell back into idle chatter. But tradition was preserved in the government's dealings with the people. Gradually, the sacred white script, Scriptura Alba Regia, an honorable mute speech came to be, for all intents and purposes, reserved for government matters, taking on a kind of cultic character, not unlike that of Latin in the past. Important news affecting the life of the people, negotiations with neighboring states, royal intentions, and such like were communicated solely mute and in white script, as befit the seriousness of the content. Once, a mute young king felt the need to institute a change. He felt that, instead of speaking mutely and writing in white script, people could just as well scream, shout, and sing random words or print random words in black, but they quickly stopped doing such things and he was removed from office. The old ways were better. The government had also gotten the people accustomed to filing their complaints about abuses of power in white script and mute speech, which was likewise how such complaints were promptly resolved. The countries that love to prattle have named their representative bodies parlamente. The tongue-tidian assemblies were called silensorias. They were held, once the members were elected, in a grand hall across from the ministry. People greeted each other in friendly fashion, drank beer and light tea paid for by public funds, spent half an hour bowing in all directions to each other, to the minister, to the king's portrait on the wall. The auditoriums were known as gymnastic halls from all this bowing, and older citizens were encouraged to run for office for that very reason. Everyone stayed silent, smiled, and looked around until a bell rung by the presiding representative signaled that the discussion was over. There were people who, unfamiliar with the country's ways of life, claimed that the royal government was perfectly happy with this arrangement, wanting nothing more than to prohibit speech, then act however it wanted. But reasonable people pointed out that the Tungtidians had everything other countries had. Order and abuses, justice and corruption. In fact, they had even more abuses and corruption than any other places, so why should they bother going back to speeches in black print? Now, the neighboring state to the south of this kingdom was the Duchy of Freedom. And just as people in the kingdom of tongue-tied respected the word and honored language so highly, those of the duchy to the south celebrated freedom so much that they kept it locked up in an undisclosed location in the ruler's own castle and never let anyone get near it. Once a year, the freedom mards marched in an annual procession to the castle sang their thundering songs, and praised the prince for protecting freedom at whatever the cost. Then the prince himself stepped out onto the balcony, said that he wanted to tell them all about freedom's state of health, and proceeded to do so. 
The people could well believe that the prince was serious about freedom because he set up jails and penitentiaries throughout the duchy as a defense against the attacks on it people were always launching. If they wanted to hear how the freedom they personally had among them looked at the time, the answer was, according to castle employees, that she was a little old lady with a bad cough who walked bent over and spit up into her handkerchief. The duke led her around by the arm. She was practically blind and walked with a cane. She was, to hear several courtiers tell it, not unattractive, down at heel as she was. The duke told her all about what was happening in the country as they ate their meals together, and the old lady picked at her food, smiled a melancholy smile, and dreamily said, What do they still want with me? I don't understand. After all, there's a time and a place for everything. I'm only a prejudice. The duke continued to think of her with respect and deference, however, and saw her as his most valuable possession, the jewel in his crown. He always kept his jails and penitentiaries full in her honor, for where can anyone learn to respect freedom better than there, he said, where they have to do without it? Therefore, everyone had to take their turn passing through jail once. The duke granted no exceptions. And whenever anyone, furious that he'd have to go to jail anyway, committed an actual crime, the duke immediately chopped off his head for being pushy. The kingdom of tongue-tied and the duchy of freedom maintained good relations with each other and used to trade a certain percentage of their populations annually in order to rear as great a race of good citizens and exemplary human beings as possible. These two states lasted a very long time, and it is even possible that they still exist today. But little is known on that topic since our geography and history focus primarily on the stratosphere. That was Kate Burton reading Alfred Dublin's A Little Fable. I'm Baron Vaughn. When we return, a political marriage and one confused Scottish terrier. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Baron Vaughn. On this edition of Selected Shorts, we're exploring stories about the personal, the political, and the line between them. The personal and political always overlap in my life because I'm a black man and I speak my mind, which to some is a political issue. Our final story on the show is by author Peter Orner. He's written novels including Love and Shame and Love and short story collections including Maggie Brown and Others. This particular tale, Shouting Winky, is about a moment of crisis in the life of a fiercely political family. Our narrator is the son of a suburban mayor and his longtime campaign manager. Later in his life, the son recalls how politics finally trumped love and just how much 
intramarital strife was visited on the poor family dog. The actor reading this story plays the title character in Ray Donovan and has been featured in films including my personal favorite, X-Men Origins Wolverine. He is also in the Wes Anderson movie The French Dispatch. This is Liev Schreiber performing Peter Orner's story, Shouting Wanky. Georgia Shoemaker shoved open the window and aimed with both her not-so-little hands on the gun like she'd seen in the movies. Knowing that though she'd never fired a single shot in her life, she wasn't going to miss. She didn't. The woman shot my father's dog. It's become part of this town's lore, told and lied about so many times, that even people who moved here years later talk about the assassination as if they'd witnessed it. Now that my father, too, is dead, the story keeps bubbling up in my head, and here I am, like everybody else, getting my own kick out of it. I don't intend to set any records straight, nor do I wish to exonerate anyone. Most people who tell it portray Georgia Shoemaker, also now deceased, as a nut job, and my father as a megalomaniac. For the most part, the analysis is sound. Gretchen, of course, was innocent, and yet she barked like there was no tomorrow. And though she was a dog, a generally good dog, it is not unfair to ask whether she could have been wholly unconscious that she was driving the neighbors bat crazy. It began, like any other outrage in the history of my family, with politics. At the time of my parents' divorce, my father, Miles Yarmo, was at the tail end of his fifth two-year term as mayor. We're talking about a northwest suburb of Chicago in the mid-1980s. The job was largely a ceremonial post. Morton Grove has a city manager. My father presided over, napped through, city council meetings. He snipped ribbons. He visited schools. Year after year, giving the same speech about community, duty, and the importance of proper footwear. Then he'd pass out some ancient buttons left over from his first campaign. My, my father had an apparently inexhaustible stash of those yellow Yarmo 74 buttons and Yarmo 74 pens. Our house had Yarmo 74 pens by the thousands. I used to like to take them apart so that when he went to write with one, the nib wouldn't pop out the little hole when you press the button. When my father wasn't being mayor, he was allegedly a podiatrist, but politics had long ago supplanted any genuine interest he'd once had in the deformities of the feet. My father wasn't a good or a bad mayor. How could anybody have judged? He'd always been mayor. His license plate nearly announced it, Mayo I. In the hip pocket of his jacket, he carried a copper-plated gavel and never hesitated to pound for order on restaurant tables, drugstore counters, our bedroom doors. He'd bang his gavel on the bathroom door if he thought you'd been in there too long. Even his fingers. I can't explain this except to just say it. My father had fleshy, 
mayoral fingers. My mother was a political animal of a different type. She was an operator, a strategist, Don King in a blouse, the ruthless brains of the operation. She'd been my father's campaign manager and had a flawless record, five wins, no losses, one TKO. In 1980, my father's opponent dropped dead during the campaign. On the side is a full-time job my mother taught medieval history at the high school. She may have been a, a slightly more committed teacher than my father was a foot doctor, but the love of both their lives was electoral triumph. The thing about my mother is that though she was utterly zealous about campaigns, and though the closer it got to election day, the more ferocious she became, she had as little concern as my father did for what happened afterward. The morning after election day, Dr. Jekyll would welcome my sister and me to the kitchen in some recently unearthed apron and she'd shout, how about some brunch team? Even so, campaigns are tough on a marriage, any marriage. By 1984, my parents had not yet tired of politics, but they'd had more than enough of each other. The last straw was my father running unopposed. What kind of pansy ad runs unopposed, my mother said. I won't get into every unseemly detail of the divorce proceedings. It's enough to say that they engaged each other in spirited combat over their respective and totally fictitious adulterous reputations. I remember being confused by this at the time, they each had as much interest in sleeping with other people as they did in sleeping with each other. Now I get it. Sex, like anything else, is a story we tell ourselves about the lives of other people. In the end, my father's rumors prevailed. He'd come into the possession of some not-so-convincing photographic proof of my mother and a substitute P.E. teacher. It was a different time, and... Illinois law still favored the idea that women's purity was sacrosanct. My father got the house and the dog, and my mother got my sister and me, except on Tuesday nights and every third weekend. A half-life interest in the house and the cat. My mother's revenge should have been predictable. She recruited a candidate to run against my father in the next election. Our town has no primaries, all eggs are in the general, and that candidate was Chuck Wenke. We resided in a great and proud democracy. Nobody can ever take this away from Morton Grove, Illinois. But the root of the problem was, and this is where things become as convoluted as only a story of small town politics can be, Chuck Wenke had recently moved next door to our house, now my father's house. My father's neighbors on the other side, just to complete this twisted circle or square or whatever it was, were Georgia and Ira Shoemaker, and they'd lived next door to us since the Paleolithic period. Chuck was, on the surface, and most likely deeper down, an obscenely rich bachelor imbecile. He'd inherited a fortune from his father, a drugstore magnate. His passion, 
watching people clean his pool. A candidate from heaven, my mother said. A guy like this only comes around once a generation. We, my mother, my sister, and I were sitting at the kitchen table of our new apartment, licking envelopes for a wanky mass mailing. Wanky for change. My sister and I were my mother's campaign staff. We were also my father's campaign staff, but he didn't work us as hard as my mother did. Actually, but for sending us with some leaflets to hand out at the jewel, he didn't work us at all. My father rested, slumbered on fat incumbency. In his single debate with Wenke at the League of Women Voters, my father's pomposity reached some of its greatest heights. A mammoth-breasted woman in an enormous Bella Abzug hat stood and demanded to know his position on the ERA. No bull, Yamo, I want it straight. You've been dodging this for years. Thumbs up or thumbs down? My father shrugged. He said, women were all right as long as you weren't married to any of them for very long. He then proceeded, Hoover-like, to expound on the importance of continuity in representative government, of Miles Yarmo as an institution. It's almost, my father said, as if I'm less a man than a living embodiment of an ideal. The ladies of the League of Women Voters hissed. When Chuck Wanky was asked the same question, he read a note from my mother that said if he was elected, he'd appoint a woman fire chief, a woman commissioner of parks, a woman tax assessor, and, he added a tiny bit of unscripted brilliance of his own, hell, if I had a damn navy, I'd make one of you a five-star admiral. Wenke trounced my father with 67% of the vote. My father came in a humiliating third to a write-in candidate, uh, deceased gardener named Henry Driscoll, whom my mother had campaigned for on the sly. Mr. Driscoll used to mow our lawn. Before he died, I remember he walked with a limp. On election night, my father sat in the wood-paneled den of the house that was once our house, staring at the returns on the cable access channel, dumbfounded. I watched him watch the numbers. He lost every precinct, including his own. Sitting there, stripped of his position, his identity, my father took on a certain gravity, as if in loss, he suddenly had more solidity as a flesh and blood person. It scared the hell out of me. If I'd had it in me to comfort him, I might have. I feel like Barry Goldwater, he said. Hell, I feel like Alf Landon. My sister brought him a Schlitz. I called my mother at Chuck's to congratulate her. Then the three of us sat in the dark of Dad's night and listened to the illegal fireworks exploding in the backyard next door. My father, in the beginning, handled defeat with grace. At Mayor Wenke's swearing in, he handed over the sacred violet sash of Morton Grove with dignity, even aplomb being careful not to drag it on the floor of the gym. For months, my father didn't mention the election. We thought he'd finally been cleansed of his addiction to statecraft. 
He began making appearances at his doctor's office. My father had been vanquished. Even my mother began to feel for him. She encouraged us to go see him even on non-court-appointed nights. Go to him, she said. He's your only father. A sudden bout of calm should always be alarming in people who aren't calm. People used to say that, given his diminutive size, my father had a Napoleon complex. During the Wanky race, my mother had quipped to the press, the only Napoleon my ex-husband resembles is the third one, the one who couldn't even conquer Acapulco. My father thundered back from Elba in February. The election had always been about him and my mother, but something in those few months of contemplation and renewed podiatry practice must have leached into my father's brain. And he decided that if my mother was invincible, the least he could do was make life hell for other people. One frigid morning while taking out the garbage in his red nightshirt, he had an inspiration. My father renamed Gretchen, our mostly ignored Scottish terrier, Wanky. Wanky, he roared. Wanky, Wanky, Wanky! At first, Gretchen didn't get it. She peeped a cold nose out of the doghouse, totally confused. Who's Wenky? But eventually she got the gist and accepted this apparent invitation to speak her own mind. After many years of neglect, my sister and I hadn't given Gretchen much thought since she was a puppy and we taught her to stand on her head. The dog took on a lead role. Re-enter Georgia Shoemaker, Eastern neighbor, dog run side. Georgia was a priggish, mean-spirited gossip, but nearly pretty in her way, with thick, luscious, always quaffed auburn hair. Georgia Shoemaker had always despised my mother, who was tall, effortlessly beautiful, dismissive of makeup and manicures, and especially careless about her hair, with one of those festering, obscure, Balkan-like hatreds born of living next door too long. Mrs. Shoemaker, Dr. Shoemaker, like my father, she was apparently a doctor of something, also worked at the high school as a guidance counselor. I remember her telling me that all I had in my future was trading on the family name, which wasn't going to be much. During the divorce, Georgia had been one of my father's key allies. It was she who'd fed him the story about my mother and the substitute gym teacher, along with the blurry Polaroid, she said, proved it. In an election year, though, all, all is always forgivable. During the campaign, my mother sent my sister over to try and recruit Georgia for Chuck. What made her switch sides, I've never known. Maybe it had something to do with my father's position on the ERA, or maybe... Like everyone else, she had simply tired of Mayor Yarmo tootling around town, blowing off stop signs. She agreed to stick a wanky yard sign on her front lawn. Ours was a dead-end street. The only people who ever saw the sign were the two candidates, my father and Wanky. 
And at the time, my father believed himself so far ahead in the polls, my sister was his pollster, that he didn't give it much thought. Let the upstart have a few votes, my father said, magnanimous. I might even pull the lever for the poor schmuck myself. But when he lost, not lost, drubbed, he'd shouted, drubbed, he began to fixate on the sign on Georgia Shoemaker's lawn. She had left it there long after election day, long after the late fall rains had sent it sagging halfway to the ground. During that brief interval of quiet, my father would watch the sign with a pair of binoculars as if it was some rare bird that might fly away at any moment. For my father, the Wenke sign became a physical embodiment of his defeat, the flap of the enemy colors. I wonder if recounting the sins of our fathers is simply another way of committing those sins all over again. Where's the comfort in setting a record straight, in not setting a record straight? Because here's the part where the record becomes what? Serious? Consequential? How else to put it? An ex-friend of mine, a fitness guru, once said to me, there comes a moment, a single moment, when you realize you're alive. Watch for it. Georgia Shoemaker's husband, Ira, tended to be forgotten, even more forgotten than the dog. But throughout the 1984 election and its aftermath, he was quietly sick, quietly terminally sick. Mild-mannered Ira, neighborhood wanderer Ira, picker-up of litter Ira, unofficial ranger of the tiny sliver of forest preserve at the end of our block Ira. While he was mayor, my father said Ira could be a bit of a thorn in the side of Morton Grove's development. But as a nearly silent environmental yahoo of one, he'd never been able to stop any new parking garages. Government by the people, for the people. Ira Shoemaker was a kind man on a street of ill will, and there he was that year, dying. The hospital had sent him home. I remember before he got sick how my sister and I used to meet him in the forest preserve. Once my sister yanked up a dandelion and shouted, off with your head, you Anne Boleyn. Why, child, Ira had said. Murder the weed, my sister said. Oh, I'd call that herbage a flower spikelet. Ira always spoke with his head lowered so that even now, when I think of him, I don't see his face, only a patch of round, bare head, like a crop circle in a field of otherwise normal hair. The man was sick, so sick, as sick as you can be and still be alive, and Georgia was grieving. And after a few weeks of Gresham's incessant barking, she became convinced that the noise was making his condition worse. At first, she only shouted at Gretchen from her side of the dog-run fence. Shut up, dog! My father would saunter out the back door and lift the lid of the trash can. His name, Georgia, is Wenky. It went on like this. 
My father would take out the garbage more and more times a day and wind up the dog, and Georgia would leave her kitchen and go stand there with her nose in the chain-link fence, chanting, Shut up, dog! Shut up, dog! Shut up, dog! I don't think either Georgia or my father was bothering to go to work at all at this point. Between them stood Gretchen, trying to figure out what this was all about, barking. By the way, my father's other neighbor, as if already practicing what would become his signature administrative style over the next decade, was laissez-faire. As far as Chuck Wenke was concerned, the dog could bark as much as it wanted. Her new name was an honor. Georgia called the cops. One early morning, Stu Bortz, the chief my father had hired in 1975, came over and pleaded for sanity. Bortz, a gentle, shaggy-nostrilled giant who walked with a limp from, it was said, accidentally shooting himself, don't laugh, the man lost three toes, plodded up the walk. My father, in his trademark red nightshirt, shot out of the house and met him at the front gate. The chief spoke in the gentle voice he used to cajole sad drunks. Come now, Mayor. How about a little kumbaya around here? My father then did a strange thing, even for him. In front of his gate, he did a short little dance, something like his own personal war dance. Holding out his arms, he spun around, his red nightshirt rising above his hairy thighs in the wind like a baton twirler's skirt. My father, fleetingly, exposed himself to the chief of police. He went all mayoral after, booming that in all his years of public stewardship, he'd never once heard of an ordinance that prohibited animals from acting according to their natural, God-given inclinations. Order sparrows to cease twittering? Termites hereby forbidden under law to chew our foundations. Hey there, Pepe Le Pew, unleash that stink one more time and you're looking at 30 days and don't call me mayor. He pointed to Gretchen, who was barking. She's mayor. A pet under your control, Miles. Municipal code 5, section 39, you pushed through a revision to the subsection yourself. Remember when Tony Bernardi's iguana bit that three-year-old? In April 1984, Georgia filed a private nuisance action at the Circuit Court of Skokie. After a week-long trial, my father represented himself, he lost. The judge ordered him to change Gretchen's name back to Gretchen and to keep her indoors for at least eight hours a day. My father appealed, and through it all, inside, outside, Gretchen barked. She barked at sunrise like an illegal suburban rooster. Her endurance was remarkable. She loved to bark, and so she barked. She stopped eating. It got to the point where my father didn't have to shout her up anymore. She went at it alone. I still hear her sometimes. Echoes of her late afternoon bark somewhere between a croak and a moan when it was almost too painful to bark anymore. 
And yet she did. She barked. We're moving out of the realm of politics and into the realm of love, where we have no business being. We Yarmos leave love to other people. The exhaustion of all legitimate avenues makes this a legitimate avenue. But now it has become more than a means to an end. It's ecstasy. Georgia had no idea how wonderful and simple it is in the name of love, to murder an innocent to make the guilty pay. She stands before her open parlor window and aims. The kickback that knocked her over was nothing. Most of what happened next is well known, as I've said. The papers told most of it about my parents' divorce, the election, Wenke, Georgia, and Ira, much of the attention was, understandably, on Gretchen. A lot of letters of sympathy came in for Gretchen. What people don't know is this, that at the moment Georgia fired, Ira Shoemaker was still alive. The papers reported that he was dead, and when the police arrived, he was. But the fact is that the coroner's report remains inconclusive about the time of decease. I've read it. It lists the time as anywhere between 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. Gretchen was shot at approximately 2.27. Silence, she thought. If only to give the man a few minutes of silence. Ira was leaving. Ira was fading away. At that moment, he was saying goodbye, goodbye to his encyclopedias of flora and fauna, goodbye to his drawer full of extinct prairie grass taped to index cards, goodbye to the texture of bark, goodbye to the crunchy fragility of caked mud after a long sun. When a shot didn't ring out, it cracked like a perfect stick snapping, and he recognized the sound of his own Colt Woodsman, a gun he'd inherited from his father, and he thought of dead-leafed October Sundays and his father teaching him how to shoot. His father's meaty breath, like a woman, hold it, rip it, don't let it go, and him firing and missing. He never once hit a target, he missed rabbits, he missed trees, he missed telephone poles. Once he missed a pheasant, a beautifully moronic bird, hysterically squawking, its voice like his hectoring Aunt Lorraine, and he thought, oh my Lord, Georgia. Just before he closed his eyes, he saw her standing in the doorway of his room, the old colt dangling from her limp right hand, her flushed cheeks pink as the inside of a pomegranate. In love and loved, but also perplexed. Whom on earth did you shoot? The question never made it out of his mouth. His lips looked like he was about to whistle. She watched them loosen, 
Outside, she could already hear the squalor of fresh rage, except that it was different that day, oddly higher pitched. So that to Georgia, the sounds my father was making could almost have passed for sorrow. Thank you. That was Liev Schreiber reading Shouting Winky by Peter Orner. So that's it. Three writers' visions of politics and work, in love, and its civic life. And after listening, I think we can agree, as with anchovies and men's body spray, a little goes a long way. I'm Baron Vaughn. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivian Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Sherman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Limburg Foundation. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. 